Chapters seventy three through ninety two of the Enchiridion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider, www.logoslibrary.org. The Enchiridion by St. Augustine, Chapter seventy three. But none of those is greater than to forgive from the heart a sin that has been committed against us. For it is a comparatively small thing to wish well to, or even to do good to, a man who has done no evil to you. It is a much higher thing, and is the result of the most exalted goodness, to love your enemy, and always to wish well to, and, when you have the opportunity, to do good to the man who wishes you ill, and, when he can, does you harm. This is to obey the command of God. Love your enemies, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which persecute you. But seeing that this is a frame of mind only reached by the perfect sons of God, and that though every believer ought to strive after it, and by prayer to God and earnest struggling with himself, endeavor to bring his soul up to this standard, yet a degree of goodness so high can hardly belong to so great a multitude as we believe are heard when they use this petition, Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. In view of all this, it cannot be doubted that the implied undertaking is fulfilled of a man, though he has not yet attained to loving his enemy, yet, when asked by one who has sinned against him to forgive him his sin, does forgive him from his heart. For he certainly desires to be himself forgiven when he prays, as we forgive our debtors. That is, forgive us our debts when we beg forgiveness, as we forgive our debtors when they beg forgiveness from us. CHAPTER 74 now he who asks forgiveness of the man against whom he has sinned, being moved by his sin to ask forgiveness, cannot be counted an enemy in such a sense, that it should be as difficult to love him now as it was when he was engaged in active hostility. And the man who does not from his heart forgive him who repents of his sin, and asks forgiveness, need not suppose that his own sins are forgiven of God, for the truth cannot lie. And what reader or hearer of the gospel can have failed to notice that the same person who said, I am the truth, taught us also this form of prayer, and in order to impress this particular petition deeply upon our minds, said, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The man whom the thunder of this warning does not waken is not asleep but dead. And yet so powerful is that voice, that it can awaken even the dead. CHAPTER 75 Assuredly, then, those who live in gross wickedness, and take no care to reform their lives and manners, and yet amid all their crimes and vices do not cease to give frequent alms, in vain take comfort to themselves from the saying of our Lord, Give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you for they do not understand how far this saying reaches. But that they may understand this, let them hear what he says. For we read in the Gospel as follows. And as he spake, a certain Pharisee besought him to dine with him, and he went in and sat down to meet. And when the Pharisee saw it, he marveled that he had not first washed before dinner. And the Lord said unto him, Now do ye Pharisees make clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. You fools, did not he that made that which is without make that which is within also? 
but rather give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Are we to understand this as meaning that to the Pharisees, who have not the faith of Christ, all things are clean, if only they give alms in the way these men count almsgiving, even though they have never believed in Christ, nor been born again of water and of the Spirit? But the fact is, that all are unclean who are not made clean by the faith of Christ, according to the expression, purifying their hearts by faith. And that the apostle says, Unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. How then could all things be clean to the Pharisees, even though they gave alms, if they were not believers? And how could they be believers if they were not willing to have faith in Christ, and to be born again of his grace? And yet what they heard is true, Give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Chapter 76 For the man who wishes to give alms as he ought should begin with himself, and give to himself first. For almsgiving is a work of mercy, and most truly is it said, to have mercy on thy soul is pleasing to God. And for this end are we born again, that we should be pleasing to God, who is justly displeased with that which we brought with us when we were born. This is our first alms which we give to ourselves, when, for the mercy of a pitying God, we find that we are ourselves wretched, and confess the justice of his judgment, by which we are made wretched, of which the apostle says, the judgment was by one to condemnation and praise the greatness of his love, of which the same preacher of grace says, God commendeth his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And thus, judging truly of our own misery, and loving God with the love which he has himself bestowed, we lead a holy and virtuous life. But the Pharisees, while they gave his alms the tithe of all their fruits, even the most insignificant, passed over judgment and the love of God, and so did not commence their almsgiving at home, and extend their pity to themselves in the first instance. And it is in reference to this order of love that it is said, Love thy neighbor as thyself. When, then, our Lord had rebuked them, because they had made themselves clean on the outside, but within were full of ravening and wickedness, he advised them, in the exercise of that charity which each man owes to himself in the first instance, to make clean the inward parts. But rather, he says, give alms of such things as ye have, and behold, all things are clean unto you. Then, to show what it was that he advised, and what they took no pains to do, and to show that he did not overlook or forget their almsgiving, but woe unto you, Pharisees, he says, as if he meant to say, I indeed advise you to give alms which shall make all things clean unto you, but woe unto you, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs, as if he meant to say, I know these alms of yours, and ye need not think that I am now admonishing you in respect of such things, and pass over judgment and the love of God, an alms by which ye might have been made clean from all inward impurity, so that even the bodies which ye are now washing would have been clean to you. For this is the import of all things, both inward and outward things, as we read in another place, cleanse first that which is within, that the outside may be clean also. But lest he might appear to despise the alms which they were giving out of the fruits of the earth, he says, These ought ye to have done, referring to judgment and the love of God, and not to leave the other undone, referring to the giving of the tithes. Chapter 77 
Those, then, who think that they can by giving alms, however profuse, whether in money or in kind, purchase for themselves the privilege of persisting with impunity in their monstrous crimes and hideous vices, need not thus deceive themselves. For not only do they commit these sins, but they love them so much, that they would like to go on for ever committing them, if only they could do so with impunity. Now he who loveth iniquity hateth his own soul, and he who hateth his own soul is not merciful but cruel towards it. For in loving it according to the world, he hateth it according to God. But if he desired to give alms to it which should make all things clean unto him, he would hate it according to the world, and love it according to God. Now no one gives alms unless he receive what he gives from one who is not in want of it. Therefore it is said, His mercy shall meet me. Chapter 78 Now what sins are trivial, and what heinous, is not a matter to be decided by man's judgment, but by the judgment of God. For it is plain that the apostles themselves have given an indulgence in the case of certain sins. Take, for example, what the apostle Paul says to those who are married. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Now it is possible that it might not have been considered a sin to have intercourse with a spouse, not with a view to the procreation of children, which is the great blessing of marriage, but for the sake of carnal pleasure, and to save the incontinent from being led by their weakness into the deadly sin of fornication, or adultery, or another form of uncleanness which it is shameful even to name, and into which it is possible that they might be drawn by lust under the temptation of Satan. It is possible, I say, that this might not have been considered a sin, had the apostle not added, but I speak this by permission, and not of commandment. Who then can deny that it is a sin, when confessedly it is only by apostolic authority that permission is granted to those who do it? Another case of the same kind is where he says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? And shortly afterwards, If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now it might have been supposed in this case, that it is not a sin to have a quarrel with another, that the only sin is in wishing to have it adjudicated upon outside the church, had not the apostle immediately added, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. And lest any one should excuse himself by saying that he had a just cause, and was suffering wrong, and that he only wished the sentence of the judges to remove his wrong, the apostle immediately anticipates such thoughts and excuses, and says, Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Thus bringing us back to our Lord's saying, If any man will sue thee at the law, and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And again, of him that taketh away thy goods, ask them not again. Therefore our Lord has forbidden his followers to go to law with other men about worldly affairs. And carrying out this principle, the apostle here declares that to do so is altogether a fault. But when, notwithstanding, he grants his permission to have such cases between his brethren, decided in the church, other brethren adjudicating, and only sternly forbids them to be carried outside the church, it is manifest that here again an indulgence is extended to the infirmities of the weak. 
It is in view, then, of these sins, and others of the same sort, and of others again more trifling still, which consist of offences in words and thought, as the Apostle James confesses, in many things we offend all, that we need to pray every day and often to the Lord, saying, Forgive us our debts, and to add in truth and sincerity, as we forgive our debtors. CHAPTER 79 Again, there are some sins which would be considered very trifling, if the scriptures did not show that they are really very serious. For who would suppose that the man who says to his brother, Thou fool, is in danger of hell-fire, did not he who is the truth say so? To the wound, however, he immediately applies the cure, giving a rule for reconciliation with one's offended brother. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Again, who would suppose that it was so great a sin to observe days and months and times and years, as those do who are anxious or unwilling to begin anything on certain days, or in certain months or years, because the vain doctrines of men lead them to think such times lucky or unlucky, had we not the means of estimating the greatness of the evil from the fear expressed by the Apostle, who says to such men, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. CHAPTER 80 Add to this that sins, however great and detestable they may be, are looked upon as trivial, or as not sins at all, when men get accustomed to them. And so far does this go, that such sins are not only not concealed, but are boasted of, and published far and wide. And thus, as it is written, The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. Iniquity of this kind is in Scripture called a cry. You have an instance in the prophet Isaiah in the case of the evil vineyard. He looked for judgment, but behold oppression, for righteousness, but behold a cry. Whence also the expression in Genesis, the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because in these cities crimes were not only not punished, but were openly committed as if under the protection of the law. And so in our own times, many forms of sin, though not just the same as those of Sodom and Gomorrah, are now so openly and habitually practised, that not only dare we not excommunicate a layman, we dare not even degrade a clergyman for the commission of them. So that when, a few years ago, I was expounding the epistle to the Galatians, in commenting on that very place where the apostle says, I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed labour upon you in vain, I was compelled to exclaim, Woe to the sins of men! For it is only when we are not accustomed to them that we shrink from them, when once we are accustomed to them, though the blood of the Son of God was poured out to wash them away, though they are so great that the kingdom of God is wholly shut against them, constant familiarity leads to the toleration of them all, and habitual toleration leads to the practice of many of them. And grant, O Lord, that we may not come to practice all that we have not the power to hinder. But I shall see what of the extravagance of grief did not betray me into rashness of speech. CHAPTER 81 I shall now say this, which I have often said before in other places of my works. There are two causes that lead to sin. Either we do not yet know our duty, or we do not perform the duty that we know. The former is the sin of ignorance, the latter of weakness. Now against these it is our duty to struggle, but we shall certainly be beaten in the fight unless we are helped by God, not only to see our duty, but also, when we clearly see it, 
to make the love of righteousness stronger in us than the love of earthly things, the eager longing after which, or the fear of losing which, leads us with our eyes open into known sin. In the latter case we are not only sinners, for we are so even when we err through ignorance, but we are also transgressors of the law, for we leave undone what we know we ought to do, and we do what we know we ought not to do. Wherefore not only ought we to pray for pardon when we have sinned, saying, Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, but we ought to pray for guidance, that we may be kept from sinning, saying, And lead us not into temptation. And we are to pray to him of whom the psalmist says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, my light, for he removes my ignorance, my salvation, for he takes away my infirmity. CHAPTER 82 now even penance itself, when by the law of the church there is sufficient reason for its being gone through, is frequently evaded through infirmity. For shame is the fear of losing pleasure when the good opinion of men gives more pleasure than the righteousness which leads a man to humble himself in penitence. Wherefore the mercy of God is necessary not only when a man repents, but even to lead him to repent. How else explain what the apostle says of certain persons, if God peradventure will give them repentance? and before Peter wept bitterly, we are told by the evangelist, the Lord turned and looked upon him. Chapter 83 Now the man who, not believing that sins are remitted in the church, despises this great gift of God's mercy, and persists to the last day of his life in his obstinacy of heart, is guilty of the unpardonable sin against the Holy Ghost, in whom Christ forgives sins. But this difficult question I have discussed as clearly as I could in a book devoted exclusively to this one point. Chapter 84 Now as to the resurrection of the body, not a resurrection such as some have had, who came back to life for a time and died again, but a resurrection to eternal life, as the body of Christ himself rose again, I do not see how I can discuss the matter briefly, and at the same time give a satisfactory answer to all the questions that are ordinarily raised about it. Yet that the bodies of all men, both those who have been born and those who shall be born, both those who have died and those who shall die, shall be raised again, no Christian ought to have the shadow of a doubt. CHAPTER 85 Hence in the first place arises a question about abortive conceptions, which have indeed been born in the mother's womb, but not so born that they could be born again. For if we shall decide that these are to rise again, we cannot object to any conclusion that may be drawn in regard to those which are fully formed. Now who is there that is not rather disposed to think that unformed abortions perish like seeds that have never fructified? But who will dare to deny, though he may not dare to affirm, that at the resurrection every defect in the form shall be supplied, and that thus the perfection which time would have brought shall not be wanting, any more than the blemishes which time did bring shall be present, so that the nature shall neither want anything suitable, and in harmony with it that length of days would have added, nor be debased by the presence of anything of an opposite kind that length of days has added, but that what is not yet complete shall be completed, just as what has been injured shall be renewed. CHAPTER 86 and therefore the following question may be very carefully inquired into and discussed by learned men, though I do not know whether it is in man's power to resolve it, at what time the infant begins to live in the womb, whether life exists in a latent form before it manifests itself in the motions of the living being. To deny that the young who were cut out limb by limb from the womb, lest if they were left there dead the mother should die too, 
have never been alive, seems too audacious. Now, from the time that a man begins to live, from that time it is possible for him to die. And if he die, wheresoever death may overtake him, I cannot discover on what principle he can be denied an interest in the resurrection of the dead. CHAPTER 87 we are not justified in affirming even of monstrosities, which are born and live, however quickly they may die, that they shall not rise again, nor that they shall rise again in their deformity, and not rather with an amended and perfected body. God forbid that the double-limbed man who was lately born in the East, of whom an account was brought by most trustworthy brethren who had seen him, an account which the presbyter Jerome, of blessed memory, left in writing, God forbid, I say, that we should think that at the resurrection there shall be one man with double limbs, and not two distinct men, as would have been the case had twins been born. And so other births, which, because they have either a superfluity or a defect, or because they are very much deformed, are called monstrosities, shall at the resurrection be restored to the normal shape of man. And so each single soul shall possess its own body, and no body shall cohere together, even though they were born in cohesion but each separately shall possess all the members which constitute a complete human body. CHAPTER 88 Nor does the earthly material out of which men's mortal bodies are created ever perish, that, but though it may crumble into dust and ashes, or be dissolved into vapours and exhalations, though it may be transformed into the substance of other bodies, or dispersed into the elements, though it should become food for beasts or men, and be changed into their flesh, it returns at a moment of time to that human soul which animated it at the first, and which caused it to become man, and to live and grow. CHAPTER 89 And this earthly material, which when the soul leaves it becomes a corpse, shall not at the resurrection be so restored, as that the parts into which it is separated, and which under various forms and appearances become parts of other things, though they shall all return to the same body from which they were separated, must necessarily return to the same parts of the body in which they were originally situated. For otherwise, to suppose that the hair recovers all that our frequent clippings and shavings have taken away from it, and the nails all that we have so often pared off, presents to the imagination such a picture of ugliness and deformity as to make the resurrection of the body all but incredible. But just as if a statue of some soluble metal were either melted by fire, or broken into dust, or reduced to a shapeless mass, and a sculptor wished to restore it from the same quantity of metal, it would make no difference to the completeness of the work what part of the statue any given particle of the material was put into, as long as the restored statue contained all the material of the original one. So God, the artificer of marvellous and unspeakable power, shall with marvellous and unspeakable rapidity restore our body, using up the whole material of which it originally consisted nor will it affect the completeness of its restoration, whether hairs return to hairs and nails to nails, or whether the part of these that had perished be changed into flesh, and called to take its place in another part of the body, the great artist taking careful heed that nothing shall be unbecoming or out of place. CHAPTER 90 Nor does it necessarily follow that there shall be differences of stature among those who rise again, because they were of different statures during life, nor is it certain that the lean shall rise again in their former leanness, and the fat in their former fatness. But if it is part of the Creator's design that each should preserve his own peculiarities of feature, and retain a recognizable likeness to his former self, while in regard to other bodily advantages all should be equal, 
then the material of which each is composed may be so modified that none of it shall be lost, and that any defect may be supplied by him who can create at his will out of nothing. But if in the bodies of those who rise again there shall be a well-ordered inequality, such as there is in the voices that make up a full harmony, then the material of each man's body shall be so dealt with that it shall form a man fit for the assemblies of the angels, and one who shall bring nothing among them to jar upon their sensibilities. And assuredly nothing that is unseemly shall be there, but whatever shall be there shall be graceful and becoming, for if anything is not seemly, neither shall it be. CHAPTER 91 the bodies of the saints, then, shall rise again free from every defect, from every blemish, as from all corruption, weight, and impediment. For their ease of movement shall be as complete as their happiness. Once their bodies have been called spiritual, though undoubtedly they shall be bodies, and not spirits. For just as now the body is called animate, though it is a body, and not a soul, anima, so then the body shall be called spiritual, though it shall be a body, not a spirit. Hence, as far as regards the corruption which now weighs down the soul, and the vices which urge the flesh to lust against the spirit, it shall not then be flesh, but body, for there are bodies which are called celestial. Wherefore it is said, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and, as if in explanation of this, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. What the apostle first called flesh and blood, he afterwards calls corruption, and what he first called the kingdom of God, he afterwards calls incorruption. But as far as regards the substance, even then it shall be flesh. For even after the resurrection of the body of Christ was called flesh. The apostle, however, says, It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Because so perfect shall then be the harmony between flesh and spirit, the spirit keeping alive the subjugated flesh without the need of any nourishment, that no part of our nature shall be in discord with another. But as we shall be free from enemies without, so we shall not have ourselves for enemies within. CHAPTER 92 But as for those who, out of the mass of perdition caused by the first man's sin, are not redeemed through the one mediator between God and man, they too shall rise again, each with his own body, but only to be punished with the devil and his angels. Now what if they shall rise again with all their diseases and deformities of body, bringing with them the diseased and deformed limbs which they possessed here, it would be labor lost to inquire. For we need not weary ourselves speculating about their health or their beauty, which are matters uncertain, when their eternal damnation is a matter of certainty. Nor need we inquire in what sense their body shall be incorruptible, if it be susceptible of pain, or in what sense corruptible, if it be free from the possibility of death. For there is no true life except where there is happiness in life, and no true incorruption except where health is unbroken by any pain. When, however, the unhappy are not permitted to die, then, if I may so speak, death itself dies not. And where pain without intermission afflicts the soul, and never comes to an end, corruption itself is not completed. This is called in Holy Scripture the second death. End of chapters 73 through 92. Recording by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, on April 14, 2007.